Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, September 27th, 2021. Today is the third podcast in our three-part miniseries on placenta accreta. Last week and two weeks ago, Brett Einerson and I talked about placenta accreta, and today I'm joined by Professor Ilan Timur to talk about cesarean scar pregnancy, which is a precursor to placenta accreta. It's a huge honor to have Dr. Timur on the podcast today. Ilan is one of the pioneers of ultrasound in pregnancy and gynecology, and he's literally world-renowned. I'm very privileged to know him and have an opportunity to interview him about this fascinating topic. Next week, as a reminder, we start our six-part miniseries on twins. All right, I want to give you all a heads up that Thursday, we have a unique high-risk birth story. For the first time, we're going to be hearing from someone who decided to terminate a pregnancy. Whether you consider yourself pro-choice or pro-life or you find yourself somewhere in the middle, I highly recommend you check out the podcast Thursday. No agenda for the podcast, just a very compelling story. For now, enjoy my talk with Dr. Timur on cesarean scar pregnancy. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Ilan Timur, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to see you and to have you here in person. Thank you so much. I hope that I will do well because this is my first podcast. Excellent. Should I say that? Is it No, no, no. We have a lot of first-timers here. When you say it's your first podcast, you mean recording or even listening? No, recording. Okay. So you're you're a podcast listener. You're you're ahead yes. of the curve. <laughs> it's a very big pleasure to see you, but it's also an honor for our listeners. Dr. Timur Elon is without hyperbole one of the world leaders in ultrasound, uh, specifically for pregnancy and gynecology, pioneered the imaging. You've authored, as, as you told me, you're on your ninth book, 318 plus articles, you know, scientific articles. So it's a great honor to have you here. How you doing today? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and uh, leave out the, the big honor. It's an honor to <laughs> like chat with you in the COVID uh, kind of era yeah. where we have very few opportunities to do that. I'm happy to be here. We see each other from time to time, uh, whether it's socially, academically, and we were at Andre's house for the barbecue and we saw each other and I said, oh my God, you got to come on the podcast. And I, we downloaded it and picked a date and it was, uh, it just worked out great. And so this is, this is amazing. So for our listeners, just because they may not know who you are, what your story is. So just give us a brief intro, you know, where are you from? How'd you get into medicine? How'd you end up in ultrasound specifically? Well, I used to say, when this question comes up, I used to say, you don't have enough time to listen. <laughs> but yes, I, I was born in Hungary, grew up in uh, Transylvania, which is part of Romania, still is. And in 1960, uh, emigrated to Israel, spent there a very long time, uh, went to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And then uh, my residency in Haifa, Rambam Hospital, and then I went to uh, do some fellowship in uh, maternal fetal medicine in Cleveland, right. Ohio. So your residency was in OBGYN, right? 
My residency was in OBGYN. Right. And when you did the fellowship, that must have been the very beginnings of MFM fellowships in general, right? Well, it was not even called an MFM yeah. fellowship at that time. My chairman, who will come later in the picture, really was one of the grounding members of the maternal fetal medicine arena. Right. And so I spent there three years doing wonderful time learning what is to be here in America and uh, part of the system and uh, did research mostly in fetal, would you believe it, fetal behavior. Mm. So we looked at the little wiggles of the, the electronic monitoring right. of the fetal heart and tried to read into it of what kind of sleep state the fetus is, because at that time that was big, and um, wrote with my co-fellow, who is still my one of my best friends, lives in Cleveland still, we wrote about six articles about uh, fetal behavioral states, fetal movements, fetal hiccups, all these mm -hmm. things. And then I went back to Israel and spent there for about six or more years, and then came back to the States to the same person a same chairperson uh, who at this uh, time was already the, uh, running the department at Columbia Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. And I spent with him another couple of years. He unfortunately passed mm -hmm. uh, because of Lou Gehrig's disease. But this was basically the time when I uh, decided that it would be nice to stay in the United States, even though I tried to go back for another year or, year or so. But then I came back to Columbia Presbyterian, and from there to NYU in 1999, mm. January 1st. And that's the story. And when did you get interested for the first time in ultrasound? Okay, that's a parallel story. When I was in residency, I did one year of electronic engineering at the Israeli Technion, uh -huh. and my subject was to construct a, a miniature oxygen electrode for the scalp of the fetus. And at that time, I met somebody there who was interested also in ultrasound. And then we got the first ultrasound machine, which I already knew about in mm. Cleveland, because right. I, I already operated an ultrasound machine in 1978 in Cleveland. Right. So um, I was interested in I bought one of the first machines in Israel mm -hmm. and used it in the department. And then I bought another one for my private practice. Right. And then at the time, you're talking about, you know, late 70s. What was ultrasound like back then? Well, ultrasound was basically a free arm scanner that uh, went back and forth on the abdomen of the fetus. It was called uh, mostly B-scan, and a picture was constructed by transducer producing uh, faint echoes on uh -huh. the screen, and uh, you it was a guesswork. <laughs> And, and, and yeah. we were happy if we uh, were correct. To see what ultrasound is like now, where it's like, it's like sticking your head inside and looking with your eyes, or even better compared to then. I mean, what's that like? Because I mean, you're you were there at the start, you're there now, you're busy in ultrasound the entire time. So you're talking, this is, you know, 40 plus years in ultrasound. What? what Looking back on that, what's it been like? It's an amazing journey because ultrasound basically was a, it's a parallel kind of a pathway. 
transabdominal ultrasound, and then derivative of this, which is the transvaginal ultrasound, that uh, started out basically with, uh, not with me, with uh, Alfred Kratochwil in, in Austria, in Vienna. But he had a static scanner, which produced pictures very very similar to those of the abdominal mm-hmm. ultrasound, but and the technology was the electronic technology was not very good at that time. So when I went back to Israel, I I uh, stole a pediatric cardio transducer, which mm-hmm. was the f- the smallest footprint. Yeah, but it had a very high resolution, mm-hmm. and uh, this is uh, already in the internet that's how I did my first transvaginal probe. I put two tongue depressors Mm -hmm. and taped it onto the uh, handle of the trans, of this tiny uh, cardiac uh, transducer, put a a condom on it Mm -hmm. and put it in the vagina. And Mm -hmm. that is where I was stunned what you can see when you put the transducer close to the ovary and the uterus. Right. That's my aha moment of embracing transvaginal ultrasound and ever since i never left it mm-hmm. for 20 years until it was really accepted in the united states right and exactly 20 years wow. the editors of journals were right. skeptical right they said it's only an observation there is no data right. there is no uh right. what data you, you put it in you look this is a good picture yeah <laughs> And and then I wrote the first transvaginal ultrasound uh-huh. book. It right. was in eighty nine, uh-huh. and then the second edition that was in ninety, uh-huh. and uh, that's how it started uh, with me in terms of uh, using the transvaginal ultrasound. It's amazing, you know, because of your history and who you are and what you do. There's obviously so many topics we can talk about related to ultrasound in medicine and in OBGYN. But I thought that we would talk today about a really interesting topic and it's it's a little bit new on the horizon in terms of diagnosis and therapies and it's something you've been involved with a lot we've been involved with together and it's cesarean scar pregnancy or cesarean scar ectopic it's sometimes called how would you explain to someone what that is what is this concept it is basically a uh, rather rare occurrence of a pregnancy implanted not in the right place, which is the uterine cavity. It is implanted in a faulty uh, recess Mm -hmm. um, of the lower part of the uterus anteriorly, where it takes advantage of a previously performed surgery, namely the cesarean section, Mm -hmm. which many claim that is not repaired all the way or the right way, Mm -hmm. leaving a little tiny dehiscence, or we call it niche, in which the uh, fertilized egg gets lost, so to say, and uh, implants, and then does all the bad things that we are then seeing after uh, the pregnancy develops. When was this first sort of idea? identified in the sense that it was, you know, named and, you know, the terms were coined. Because I remember I was at a conference once in ultrasound, and this is a, a while ago, and there was a, a someone giving a, a talk on ultrasound and someone from the audience, I think it was a talk on ectopic pregnancy, which is normally when it implants in the tube. And someone asked a question of the speaker and said, 
what do you think about cesarean scar ectopic? And the speaker had never heard of it. And the speaker is an ultrasound person. And the person in the audience does ultrasound and had heard of it. I mean, there was this transition point where people didn't even know what it was. What Do you remember when that happened? As a matter of fact, it's a recurring thing from 1990 to about almost 1910. Uh, that was the question because right. people were not... First of all, the cesarean sections were not that almost daily at right. that time. So the uh, opportunity to have a scar pregnancy was much more rare than it is now. Right. So people were really not sure about it. And that, that was also the time when it was Christianed or called or termed ectopic, which I now fight with a vengeance because ectopic pregnancy is something that is or in the tube or in out in the in the ovary or or in the cervix and does not result in a viable fetus while cesarean scar pregnancy results if so um, continued in a viable uh, baby so i am against calling it ectopic pregnancy and these questions came after the first publications were around the 1990 and one of the first guys was a wonderful obstetrician who made a brilliant observation. His name is Ivan Vial from Lausanne, from Switzerland. We became very good friends, mm -hmm. and he called it endogenous mm -hmm. and exogenous mm. uh, pregnancy in the scar. He never called it ectopic. Right. And that was one of the first observations, even though there were several papers who, uh, which were published, but it was not recognized as such. Ivan Vial was the first one that really said, this is an entity, this right. is a bad entity, and watch out for it. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to separate it from the term ectopic, because for a lot of reasons, ectopic has a long, long history in, you know, obstetrics and gynecology. And Doctors know what it is. Nurses know what it is. Other doctors know what it is. Patients, some know, some don't. But and everyone understands, right, that's a pregnancy. It's outside the uterus. It's very dangerous. It's life-threatening. You're not going to have a baby, this, that. And then it, this thing was called ectopic because it's sort of not in the right place, but it is in the uterus. It's just in a crevice in the uterus where it shouldn't be ideally. And so if you call it ectopic, it's not all those other things. And people also get confused and the treatments and the dangers. And so I do think that we just call cesarean scar pregnancy for that reason, just like you mentioned. I, th I think that does make sense. So why is it so risky? Like if it can have a live baby, so it's not like an ectopic in the tube, what is it about the pregnancy finding that old cesarean scar and burrowing into there? Why is that an issue? The danger comes from two um, major occurrences. One, it can borrow itself so deep into the into the anterior wall of the uh, myometrium. As a matter of fact, it's very thin there, and that's why it happens, that it it, um, it penetrates into the area of the bladder. Right, so it sort of bursts through the and, uterus. And, yeah. and there are numerous articles about the ruptures of, yeah. of these when it really enters the um, area of the uh, anterior wall and the bladder, which is covering that area of the of the uterus. Mm -hmm. The second danger comes from the fact that usually uh, 
at least 80-90% of the cases it is associated with the placenta being very, very low and very vascular. Right. And when the placenta and this area becomes vascular, any kind of small insult will start bleeding. Right. So these hemorrhage, these bleed, these pregnancies, and that is the second danger. Right. So it's the uterus rupturing, um, and that's before labor, right? This is before, earlier in pregnancy. Earlier, in the and, second yeah. and third yeah, trimester. Yeah, and, and that itself is clearly life-threatening. And then also, even without that, the bleeding. And and the pregnancies that do continue and don't have a rupture and don't have bleeding, more than 50% of the time, much higher, are going to have probably a placenta accreta where it's because it's so it's so burrowed in there, it's going to get stuck to the uterus. It's not going to peel off nicely at delivery. Right. Correct. So uh, to explain the accreta, basically, it, it is there is a layer between a normal pregnancy and the and the uterine wall, which one was called the fibrinoid layer of Nitabuch, mm -hmm. which now it's not called anymore. <laughs> Eric Junio changed everything uh -huh. in, in, in the UK. And that uh, layer is, is, is disrupted by the cesarean section, mm -hmm. by the incision. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the placenta burrows itself into right. the myometrium, deep into the myometrium. And then when it goes really very much through it, then that's dangerous. And, and we also, uh, you know, that we usually differentiate these kinds of placenta as very little yeah. uh, penetration, mm -hmm. then a little more penetration, right. and then full penetration. There are terms for right. this which is not that important. But the ones that are really going in deep, those are the bad ones. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. One of the other issues with this condition, cesarean scar, is it's hard to know that that was the reason all this is going on unless you had an ultrasound very early in pregnancy and the person doing the ultrasound or reading the ultrasound knows to look for this, right? Because I'll see a lot of people who will come and they've had an ultrasound and then I see them like, oh my God, this is like sitting in the cesarean scar. And they're like, well, my doctor didn't tell me that. I was like, well, they didn't really know. They didn't know to look for this. They didn't, they didn't understand how to interpret it. They don't, they don't think of it in the same way, which is okay. They don't do ultrasound all day, but if this is missed, it could be a really dangerous pregnancy. Well, you are you are so right, but it depends when the first ultrasound yeah. was done. Yeah, and patients who are unsuspecting, they may go to the doctor when they are only nine or ten weeks. They mm. say, "Okay, I had a positive pregnancy test. I was always okay. I had two kids before. The last one was a cesarean section, and now it's fine." Mm. And then the doctor who does the first ultrasound sees the gestational sac and the embryo pretty low, but almost in the cavity, right. but does not look at the placenta, right. which is implanted in the lower anterior part, deeply going into the area of the bladder, and does not look at the vascularity of it. Right. So reassures the patient, oh, the pregnancy is in a good side, right. in a good place. And, but that is preventable by doing an ultrasound very, very early. Right, because you'll see, you'll see exactly where it Five is. Five weeks, just after the, the first positive pregnancy test, if they are doing that five, six weeks, I think that an ultrasound would make the diagnosis. Now, we wrote an article and said every patient who had a previous cesarean section 
and has a new pregnancy should go for an ultrasound at five to seven weeks. Now, this article was embraced and accepted in the literature, but it was an opinion article. Right. Because the uh, societies, such as the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, the American Journal, American uh, Institute of Ultrasound in Medicine, the Radiology Society, don't uh, endorse Mm -hmm. this. They say, oh, this is an extra scan right uh, it will ruin the ca- the economy of the united states right I'm, I'm <laughs> being facetious right and and therefore it's not endorsed but many already have uh, realized this and there is a follow up paper that was peer reviewed and it is uh, like uh, considered the real article yeah. or a, <laughs> original research a, a research yeah. article that was followed up and there it is clearly said that if rec- recognizing a scar pregnancy before nine weeks has a less of a complication burden of complications then it is diagnosed after nine weeks right. absolutely big difference yeah and it makes a lot of sense because we're going to talk about what the what the options are for treatment of this. And I think that that's an important point because for, you know, we have a lot of listeners and many of them are pregnant or will get pregnant. And since there's so many women who have cesareans uh, in the United States and in the world, the rate of cesarean is higher and that's its own topic. But okay, it's the truth. That's what happens. Many women are going to get pregnant who have a history of a cesarean. And it's not meant to scare them because this usually does not happen. This is a rare occurrence, but it can. And so it's something that women have to decide and say, you know, if my doctor is not going to do an ultrasound early, maybe say, well, maybe I'm a little worried about this. Can can you take a look? Can you make sure this is not going on? And they'll say, well, maybe your insurance won't cover it. So maybe I want to pay for it. Like, you know, it's, it's it, people should decide for themselves, you know, how how much testing they want to do to rule out rare but very dangerous things. And there isn't a right or a wrong here. But when it's just sort of dismissed and, oh, it's not going to be offered or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen it where if it's diagnosed too late, it's much harder to treat or not possible at all. And if it's early, as we'll talk about, you can have like a perfect outcome and everything can go okay, uh, not so much with the pregnancy, but with the mother's life. So if someone does come to you at five to seven weeks with a prior cesarean and an early pregnancy in the ultrasound, not so much what technically do you have to do, but how easy is it for you to see this versus not? Is it usually obvious or is it subtle? I mean, what is it that that you need to do in order to make this assessment to say it is a cesarean scar or it's not a cesarean scar topic? Excuse me, pregnancy. Well, if you, if you have a vaginal probe mm-hmm. and you put it in the right place, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's the anterior part of the cervix, mm-hmm. it is impossible to miss it. Right. You get the right picture, it's there. Now, there is nothing 100% in life, mm-hmm. but it is really uh, one of the most obvious diagnoses at five, six, seven weeks. Right. Put together previous cesarean section, yeah. low gestational sac, uh-huh. cesarean scar pregnancy. There's yeah. no other diagnosis. Right. Okay, cervical pregnancy. I am right now rewriting uh-huh. the up-to-date, uh-huh. which was so archaic that I, I was really mad. And they accepted 
a rewriting. So I am now rewriting the up-to-date. For cesarean scar pregnancy. Yes. I, I was going to ask you about that because I the, the current one doesn't even mention this balloon technique, which we're going to talk about. It's not even mentioned. Right now, I am at the place where the differential diagnosis is mentioned. So what is the differential diagnosis right. of a scar pregnancy when you look at it? And the first one, cervical pregnancy. And then I say in in the narrative there, however, in the previous cesarean delivery patient, it is almost entirely can be ruled out. Right. So um, again, take the clinical part, right. which is easy. Previous cesarean section, right. a low insertion right. of the gestational sac, scar pregnancy. Right. There's no, no, no other diagnosis. So obviously you're in favor of, for someone with a prior cesarean, having an early ultrasound in pregnancy. I'm curious what your opinion is about do you recommend that women should have an evaluation of their scar before pregnancy, like doing a saline sonohistogram, you know, to look at that scar? Is it full thickness? Is it, is there a niche, you know, do you recommend that routinely in certain women or is that still being determined? Okay. We are getting very deep into this and, uh, but th- th- this is an unbelievably good question. This is a, this is a serious I, podcast. This because, is 60 minutes of uh, medicine. I'm going to pound you with questions, Elon. This is no <laughs> softballs here. <laughs> uh, we, I do almost six to eight saline infusion sonohysterography mm-hmm. procedures, which is putting uh, for the audience yeah. who listens, putting a little bit of fluid in the, in the cavity with a very thin catheter. It's mm-hmm. not painful. Mm-hmm. It's not dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then looking with ultrasound whether the scar is healed or not. And right. you, uh, you alluded to the fact that sometimes that scar is not completely healed and you have a large dehiscence or yeah. niche. And the question is whether at that time you tell the patient or the referring physician or yourself, correct it before you get pregnant? I have one answer to this. The very last uh, large ones are um, mostly corrected. And this is a new branch of gynecological surgery. There are surgeons who specialize in correcting this niche. I am against it. Mm -hmm. I think that if they are really very large and there is no myometrium there mm-hmm. yes it is probably useful yeah there are articles about pregnancies uh, with corrected niches mm-hmm. or without corrected niches and the chance of getting pregnant into that niche are basically unknown right basically it's unknown and i always say you replace with this repair of the niche, you replace an old scar with a new scar. Right. And then the pathophysiology or the or the um, the reason for this implantation, which is today discussed much in the literature, uh, really has absolutely no value because you cannot predict in which pregnancies it will implant in the scar or it will not. Yeah, we've had a hard time with that also, man. We don't routinely do saline sonohistograms on people just because they had a prior cesarean. Correct. People have had multiple cesareans and this and uterine ruptures, and they're sort of, they're coming to us for a consultation to evaluate, should I get pregnant, should I not? Sometimes, it depends on the situation. Sometimes we'll look, sometimes we don't. 
And then it's the same thing. You, as we say, you have to daven over it. You get this image and you see how much is left of the, you know, if, if the full thick thickness is, let's say, 10 millimeters or one centimeter. About, and, and, the, yes. and, and you see that she has it sort of like chewed out that she has like four millimeters left. You're like, okay, what's my cut up? Is four okay? Is three okay? Is Nobody two okay? Knows. Yeah, no, no one knows. And, so, and we tell her, like, we don't know. And we've had situations where people did get surgery, people didn't. We've had people got surgery and then they come back six months later and the uterus looks perfect. And we had people who had surgery and they come back six months later and the uterus looks exactly the same. And so it's it's hard. This is an area that hopefully we'll sort out over the next you know several years, but it, it is very interesting. Can I make a comment here? You can do whatever you want. I think the that, mic is yours. I think that this issue has to be addressed not by looking at the, at the niche and repairing it or not repairing it, letting the patient be pregnant or not. It is how you suture the uterus mm. after a cesarean section. Yeah, And there is now, starts to be a very good literature on the fact that if you go do an endometrial-free closure of the incision of the cesarean section, then there is no niche remaining, or the niche is so small that's hardly seen, mm-hmm. and therefore this may be the primary thing that we have to concentrate on and not to repair right. a niche that's so, already there. So prevent rather than so treat. there yeah. are now at least two or three articles, and one of my colleagues at NYU is into this. Mm-hmm. We have already two articles put in the literature, mm-hmm. the difference between the appearance mm-hmm. of this niche when you close it correctly and when you don't. Mm, it's so interesting. So let's talk about treatments. You you find someone who pregnant prior cesarean, you diagnose her with a cesarean scar pregnancy. We're going to finish by talking about the technique you developed with the balloons. What were the older techniques that you knew about or tried or people have done? Like, what are the, the treatments that have been proposed? First of all, when a patient comes, you have to really first make sure that you explain with based on all what you have and the knowledge, the literature, the experience of previous cases, you have to talk to the patient whether she wants to continue or not. Right. If the patient wants to continue and accepts the fact that may have maybe complications, then you just manage the pregnancy with a lot of caution. Yeah. And you do that every single day in yeah. your practice. So you can uh, say you can uh, talk about this much better than I can. If the patient decides that she doesn't want to take or she already this is a pregnancy that was not planned mm-hmm. or she doesn't want to take the risk mm-hmm. of this, then we talk about what to do. And that is gestational age dependent. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to tell you that there are very few papers in the professional literature, our literature, mm-hmm. that hinges the treatment to the gestational age. Right. Because it's totally different what you do at, at six weeks mm-hmm. and what you do at 12 weeks right. and in between. Right. So again, at this point, and you asked, what, what did I do? I started out by injecting these scar pregnancies or by transvaginal ultrasound guidance, or by transabdominal ultrasound Mm -hmm. guidance. And that was my 
go-to technique. Right. With something like either potassium or methotrexate or something exactly. to stop the pregnancy. Usually I inject methotrexate. Mm-hmm. My best friends uh, who do that every day in Boston, for instance, mm-hmm. Peter Dubillet, mm-hmm. excellent person. He swears KCL. Right. I don't think there is a difference. Right. Uh, of, uh, because basically the, the damage is almost done by the mechanical insertion yeah. of the needle. Right. And uh, I used to joke and say, you can inject also whiskey. Yeah. We do the same. Right. But in, indeed, uh, the, the local injection is the first one that I tried. Right. And I got pretty good at it. The injection, just for our listeners, is you're using ultrasound and you're guiding a needle either through the mom's belly or through the vagina right. into the pregnancy. And then you inject something In that's side. intended yeah, to stop the growth of the pregnancy. And then it stops developing and eventually, you know, either withers down or miscarries out. There's still risk, obviously, of bleeding afterwards. But if the pregnancy stopped, the blood flow will decrease. The hormones are going to decrease. It'll sort of, you know, go, sort of pass the hump and on the way down in terms of growth. Absolutely correct. Uh, and, that's, so that, and that's done. That's a treatment that's known. It's cervical pregnancies have been treated this way. I mean, there are other conditions. So it's it's an... It's a technique that was already there that you just applied to this. Exactly. Similar. Okay, so that was that was the first thing you did. Then the, the other thing is that uh, many swear, and there are countless articles of just injecting uh, systemic methotrexate. That means that you take the methotrexate, right. which is acts on the placenta, and inject it intramuscularly in the buttock of the patient. To the mom, right. It's, a, it's like a chemotherapy sort of, and it, exactly. and it, sort, of kill, it sort of kills the pregnancy through and, her bloodstream. And many, many swear that, yeah. that that helps. I am totally against it. Right. I use methotrexate with every single scar pregnancy, but only as an adjuvant. Right. Right. Systemically. Right. And that, and the the reason people would try that is because methotrexate's been used for ectopic, ectopic pregnancies and choose with great success. You know, with eighty percent. You know, based right. on the circumstance. So they thought it would work for this. But why do you, why do you think it doesn't work as well for this compared to one in the tube? I have my own view, which is unsubstantiated. You're the only research, one I'm interviewing today. You can give me your view. I think that the placenta, when the placenta in, implants in a place that is hostile, not hostile, but it's not friendly, plus you give the method, they may, it may act upon the scar pregnancy. But these pregnancies are usually much, much more viable than right. an ectopic pregnancy. Right, because so they have the, the uterus placenta, supplying it, yeah. The placenta is more resilient to, yeah. to the methotrexate. Yeah. And my dislike of, uh, of systemic methotrexate, no matter how you use it, right. one injection or subsequent injections, yeah. the two kinds of yeah. treatments, I think that, in my view, at least 50%, it did not work. Yeah. But that you find out only after a week. Yeah. And then it's it's a week the bigger. Pregnancy yeah. is already bigger. Yeah. The vasculature is yeah. bigger. The complications are bigger. And yeah. the, the route of termination is more complex and, and, and right. So I, I I here is what I do. Yes, you have a scar pregnancy. Are you sure you want to terminate it? Give me an answer. Not later than tomorrow, but tomorrow I need an answer. Right, because it's 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 not yeah. more than tomorrow. Because if you give it to me, like if there is a weekend in between, 
there is already a pregnancy that's five days bigger. Yeah. And my job will be harder to terminate it and you will have more complications. Right. And I, it, sometimes this leads to treatments like major surgery to like resect it and sew the uterus together. I mean, that's a, that's a huge operation potentially. And that could also lead to you know, serious issues for future pregnancies. Yes. So uh, the, the surgical excision can be done from within the uterus mm -hmm. by looking at the area and then manipulating yeah. the, the excision under direct vision, but from the inside, mm -hmm. hysteroscopically. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is to open up or go into the abdomen of the patient or right. robotically yeah. or whatever, peel off the placenta, the bladder, and then do the excision and repair it. Those who do this, it's very interesting. They swear that this is the way to go because you you don't leave a niche. Right. And I agree with that in right. many ways. I have a friend in Argentina, one of the best placental uh, acrita surgeons. Mm -hmm. His name is Jose Palacios Jaraquemada. Mm -hmm. Wonderful man. He does only excisions. Mm -hmm. Only. I respect him. But I always tell him, why would you do that at a five, six, seven, eight, nine weeks pregnancy? We have we have more less invasive right, <laughs> right. ways to do it. Right. So tell us about the the technique that you you know th that you studied, you developed with the with the double balloon because that's the one that we use now. We think it's terrific. That was basically invented without being aware of it by a Chinese guy who placed a uh, balloon in the uterine cavity. Mm -hmm. and But that was a larger pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So then I started to put in single folly balloons mm -hmm. after I injected it locally, mm -hmm. but it started to bleed. Mm -hmm. And my balloon was not to terminate the pregnancy, but to stop the bleeding. Right. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, let's use the balloon to to compress the pregnancy. Right. And if it's small, it will cut off the blood supply. So then I started to use the single balloon. Right. And I, we published 18 cases with two Italian mm -hmm. uh, friends of mine who started to use it also. And then three patients expelled the balloon because the uterus does not uh, tolerate anything inside right. that's why we have uh, uh, abortions that right the uterus expels the content it it the the single balloon popped out right so then i said wait a minute how do we do to 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 retain that balloon so i i worked a lot in the labor and delivery room mm -hmm. with the double balloons right before my right <laughs> present uh, career and i i did put in the double balloon and the upper balloon is the anchor balloon that keeps in the 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 whole system mm -hmm. and the lower balloon does the right. job right so just to explain this visually right so there's a pregnancy in the uterus it's growing very low in the uterus towards the cervix and up towards 12 o'clock to inside the scar and the thought is if we can put a little thing inside the uterus and then inflate it like a balloon, it's going to compress that pregnancy, for lack of a better word, smush it, and it'll you know, compress the blood flow, it'll sort of smush the pregnancy, it'll stop the pregnancy from growing, and it's 
no incisions, no injections. It's just there. And then the that's the lower balloon. And then there's like a, a balloon on top. It looks like it's like a double balloon uh, on top. Looks looks like a peanut almost. And the top one sits in the top of the uterus to hold it in. And the bottom one compresses it. And, you know, it goes in. It doesn't, there's no anesthesia required. It's really, it's it's tolerated. It's not horrifically painful for people. And then you leave it in for what, overnight, typically? It varies. Uh, it, it depends on what day of the week I'm doing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I do it on, on, on a regular, like, uh, be- beginning of the week, I usually keep it in for like two days. Mm-hmm. If I do it Friday, mm-hmm. I keep it until Monday. Yeah, so two to three days, yeah. But it's very interesting that I did many of these and I even shortened the time. I put it in at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. At 12 o'clock, I deflated the lower balloon under mm-hmm. ultrasound and it, there was no more heartbeat. Yeah. Then I deflated the upper balloon also, not extracting the catheter. Yeah. And at 5 o'clock, take, took another look, no bleeding, no yeah. heartbeats. I took out the but I became aware of the fact that it may not coagulate all the vessels. Right. And that and some of these patients had a little more bleeding. Mm-hmm. So I then I kept it in two days and sometimes even three days. And then when you take take it out, then all the vessels are already closed. Right. And there is no source of Leaving, so I think that now I don't go for the uh, for the one day like extraction. Right. So it, it's an amazing technique. It's like when you see one or do one, it's like it's the simplest concept. It makes so much sense. It's such a high level of working, such low morbidity. Why hasn't this taken off more? Why do you think? Let me before I answer this question. You said before that no uh, anesthesia is required. Usually, the only the only one. Sometimes the patients are are sensitive. Sure. And in these patients, I do use a little bit of a uh, local anesthetic on the, on cervix. In the cervix. Okay, that's fair. So that that's just yeah. to uh, cut into that uh, sentence of yours. So it's interesting. We had a webinar. About three months ago, the Europeans did it, and I talked about uh, balloons. And this question came up. Why do people not embrace it? So there are many reasons. One, I don't have the balloons. Mm -hmm. So my answer in the slide was cook, (laughs) balloon, number so-and-so, cost that much. Right. Number two. I have never worked in the labor and delivery. I don't know how to use it. My answer, go up to the labor and delivery. If your place uses it, take a look at it. If your place doesn't use it, there are many articles on the subject. Right. Number three, I cannot use it in the office because because I'm afraid that something happens. My answer, do it in the operating room, do it in the office, put the patient in for an overnight or some hours to look at it. So there are answers to every excuse, so to say, but these are legal excuses of people who don't yet know the, 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 the procedure. And I think that if people would do a little bit of an effort, people would use it. Right now, there is a registry. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people upload cases. And we started by uploading cases. Now there are more than 350 cases in, not all balloons, right? but a large number of balloons, because in Poland they do it, in Switzerland they mm-hmm. do it. I have friends in Texas, uh, known people mm-hmm. who are uh, in the Akrita business, yeah. and, and they are doing it. In Italy, they are doing it. So uh, there are lots of cases. So that's the way that people learn how to uh, really try to do it. Yes, we went online. The website is www.csp-registry.com. Welcome to the Caesarean Scar Pregnancy Registry. So there's information on it, steering committee centers, project sponsors, resources. Is there a video here of the balloon technique? I don't think so. Oh, all right. We're going to have to put that up on our website. We're going to get that video because I know you have it. So I, got have, some good I, have, ones. I have one. We'll put that up on the website uh, for people to see. So it, it's managed in the in the UK. Mm, okay. And uh, there are three people who manage it. One is Baski Tagilanatan mm-hmm. and uh, Ke- Andrea Kalin, who was my research assistant for many years, and myself. Amazing stuff. Full circle from the early days of the machine where you can barely tell someone's pregnant to now you're seeing someone at six weeks diagnosing something potentially, you know, counseling them, uh, maybe continuing the pregnancy, knowing to watch for these complications, maybe ending the pregnancy in a safe way. Uh, It must be pretty satisfying to sort of to take it full circle like that. It is. It is. And again, we always say it's rare. But and and yes, it's 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 nowadays the scar preg- the cesarean section rate stabilized right, thirty two point whatever some of yeah. the uh, change percent and yes, it is rare, but it is a serious. I think that the breakthrough of the of realizing the importance is when the connection between scar pregnancy and placenta accreta spectrum was made. Right. Probably my my biggest pride is that I have two articles in which I said at the very beginning that scar pregnancies are baby accretas. Right. And the second one, even more important, that I gave products of the pregnancy, of scar pregnancy and of placenta accreta to two pathologists. And I said, Put it under your microscope. Tell me which one is which. Right. And they couldn't. Right. The same thing. That means that the histology is even the same. Right. So that, I think, focused the attention towards an early diagnosis and the fact that if you don't treat or you don't want to treat or you miss to treat, it develops into something much more consequential. Ilan, thank you so much for coming in, for coming on the podcast and uh, and sharing your story and this really important information about cesarean scar pregnancies. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure vent, vent, <laughs> ventilating. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, 
please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.